Um, I'm going to be speaking this morning, and uh, we we've been in this series on David for uh, quite a few months, and um, we're, we're going to transition over the next few weeks for the next three weeks leading up to Easter. And I think Sarah Sarah mentioned this last week. We want to uh, do a series that where we focus on uh, the concept and ideas around uh, sin. And uh, before you start tuning me out and going, oh man, this doesn't sound like a, a good series. Uh, I, I pray that this morning, as we start talking about this, that um, the Lord will just do something exciting in us about this topic. Um, and as we do that, we're going to do this in three parts. We're going to uh, do part one today, part two next week, and part three on um, um, Palm Sunday. And we want to focus in, and look at three uh, general aspects. The first one I want to focus on today is uh, a pretty common area around sin, and it has to do with sin that we engage in, both as individuals and as um, as society, as culture. But this idea, and it's a traditional thought about um, sin that we participate in, that we engage in as people. Um, next week, we want to talk about the concept of sin as it relates to something that we've inherited. Um, whether it would be as Romans talks about uh, inheriting from Adam or uh, as others like to say, Jesus is in my heart, but grandpa's in my bones. And what are the things that we potentially inherit from our families? Uh, but that idea of um, sin has has multiple facets to it. And the, the third week, the last week, we want to talk about um, sin that we experience as wounding or trauma that comes outside of us or uh, wounding or trauma that we we. Um, have done to others. So looking at sin from a lot of different ways, and one of the reasons we want to talk about sin, I want to I give you guys two pictures of why we want to talk about sin and help us, um, help us to understand this. The first is it's a topic that comes up all the time. In the Bible, if you read the New Testament, if you read the Old Testament, New Testament, there's hundreds and hundreds of references to the concept of sin. And as Jesus is coming on the scene, one of the very first scenes is when Jesus gets baptized by John. And, and it says this in John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we go into this time of Easter, celebrating Easter, we're gonna be, we're gonna be, Focusing on that idea, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was, this was a significant one of the main reasons Jesus came. I loved what Stanley said last week. He said, "Listen, um, Jesus came because God so loved the world, right? So Jesus came because of the love of God, and as He came as the love of God, He came as a Lamb to take away the sins of the world." So one, it describes, when we talk about sin, we start getting a glimpse and looking at the glory of God. The second is that it help us, helps us understand our human condition. Think about this. Sin is something we inherit. Sin can be a power or a force that we're under in bondage to the works of the enemy, something we engage in, wounding that's perpetuated on us in, in wounding that we do to others. It's a human condition. It's something that we all experience. In Romans 3, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see in this one passage, the human condition and this idea of God's glory. 
the human condition and God's glory. And Jesus sits as the bridge. Jesus sits as the as as our salvation, as as our hope, as our life, as our freedom, as our forgiveness. It's both our human condition and the glory of who Jesus is and what he did. So as we talk about this, we want to be okay with telling the truth and being a place and a church where it's it's safe and okay to tell the truth. Paul said this, Sarah read this scripture last week, and I've just been meditating it all week. Paul, who's mentoring the next generation, he's, he's writing to the next generation of Jesus followers to Timothy, and he says this in verse 15. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, the glory of God, of whom I am the worst. That's Paul's statement. It, it's, it's that same idea of for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's like, Jesus came to save sinners and I'm the worst. But for that re- very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience and as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I find that as we talk about sin and as we talk about Jesus, that's where where the Lord wants us to end. The end of the conversation is about the Lord's glory, what the Lord wants to do, the Lord setting things right. And, And yet in the same breath, in the same sentence, it's, I'm the worst of sinners. In her book, Rachel Held Evans writes, after being asked this question about why are you a Christian, she says, I'm a Christian because Christianity names and addresses sin. It acknowledges the reality that the evil we observe in the world is also present within ourselves. It tells the truth about the human condition that we're not okay. This is why we want to talk about sin. I've been reading a book uh, by a pastor named Rich Velotis, and it's called The Good, the Beautiful, and the Kind. And he, and he starts, though, talking about three aspects of sin in his book. And he, he was a little worried as he's getting into his book because he's like, man, when pastors start talking about sin, people have, we all have an immediate, almost a cultural reaction to this idea. He says this, sin has come to be, be associated with judgmentalism, bigotry, and a selective inconsistent moralism, leading people, religious or otherwise, to conclude that it's just another word used to control and coerce people in a particular way. That's not what we want. Sin as a concept has been abused, used to control and used to shelter, even justify indefensible hypocrisy by spiritual communities in our shared social life. So he's calling that out up front. He's saying, hey, this is, this is something that how, how at times our concepts in talking about sin have been misunderstood. The reason we want to talk about sin and we want to address this over the next few weeks is because as we talk about this, as we, um, as we bring sin into the light, as we allow the Holy Spirit to light the dark places of our lives and of, of different areas, that's how we experience wholeness and healing and freedom and forgiveness and life. It says in Romans that the wages of sin are death. Man, and that's, 
don't think about that just on a personal level. Just think about the, the effects and the impacts of sin. They don't bring life. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. I was uh, listening to a preacher talk about someone who had started following Jesus and given their life to Jesus and the Lord, and they owned a bar. They were a bar owner. And um, the question that this guy was asking was, how do I disciple this person well? How, how does the Holy Spirit start working in this person's life? And he met with the person a couple weeks after he really started walking with the Lord and said, you know, what's the Lord been speaking to you? How's the Lord working in your life? And he goes, you know, I've re been really convicted of sin. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, you know, well, what does that look like? And he says, well, the Lord's convicted me that I should stop watering down the whiskey in my bar because I'm cheating people. Probably not the uh, response that the, uh, the, the pastor was looking for, but I loved that because it, it starts getting to, you know, the minute you start making a list of sins, um, the minute we start con control and coerce and we start looking at these different things. Now, listen, the Bible is really clear about sin that is damaging and sin that's hurtful and those kinds of things. But this speaks to the Lord and the Holy Spirit working in our lives to bring health. I like this quote. Walter Brueggemann says this, churches should be the most honest place in town, not the happiest place in town. I like that. I like that statement, man. We want, we want, as we're experiencing the Lord, we want there to be an honesty and an integrity. So that's the, another reason we want to talk about sin. Uh, the next one is this, man, it creates love in us. Jesus is sitting, he's at a meal and he's sitting there and a woman in the town who's who's in prostitution and uh, doing all sorts of different things comes and just weeps at Jesus's feet, cries and anoints his feet. And the religious people are all bothered by this and annoyed by this. And Jesus says this to the people around, I tell you her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. And Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And I love, I love that because this idea of talking about sin and talking about what's in our heart and being honest, it's meant to increase our love tenfold. The problem when Jesus came was not that people weren't sinners. It was that they were sinners and they didn't know it. It's the religious people who didn't know it. They were the ones who ignored John the Baptist and didn't repent and didn't participate in his baptism. They're like, ah, oh, we don't know how messed up we are. We don't know how in need of a savior we are. As we are honest with the fullness of our human condition and the condition of humanity, there's an opportunity for the Lord's love to increase like never before. This is the work of Jesus. In Romans 5, Paul says this, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Pours out his love for us. 
takes the first step, provides all the way, does all the work. And I love this. John, in 1 John, he's writing to people who've been following Jesus for a while, and he wants to remind them of something. And I just want to walk through this, 1 John 1. He says this, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light, and there's no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness or wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So John's challenging the people of Jesus to come into the light, be honest, recognize that the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us. That this is the work of Jesus, that our love will increase. So this is, these are some, some, some of this is just the intro on some of the things why we want to talk about this. We pray that that our love for the Lord will grow. We pray that that our revelation of the bigness of God will increase. Um, if you've ever onboarded into a company through their HR process, if you've gotten a new job and you go through the HR process, <coughs> man, there's lots of steps to it. You got to fill out your W-4 and your I-9 and you got to fill out your, you know, hopefully you get health insurance or you get all of these different things and you start filling these things out. And I was um, talking to somebody at a company the other day and she said, I've been working for this company for 20 years and I had no idea about one of the benefits we get. And that was had to do with helping kids apply for college or something like that. Now, she didn't need to know about that until her kid was going to college, but then all of a sudden she found out there was this understanding of a benefit that she didn't know she had. And I feel like as we walk with the Lord, there's this unfolding revelation of the bigness of God that it's like, we had no idea when we started that we needed God to cover this and we needed God to cover that. And we needed Jesus to forgive us here. We needed Jesus to bring us to maturity here. We needed healing here. We needed wholeness here. We had no idea the depths of our needs the depths of sin, the depths of all of these different things. And it's like, it's like working for the best company ever. And all of a sudden you just find out, wow, Lord, you want to make provision for this. You want to make provision for that. And I feel like in my life growing up, I only understood sin as you, you this, this was how I understood it. You said one prayer to cover your original, you know, hey, you were born in sin. So Lord, I confess I was born in sin. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Be my savior. And then the next one is read the words of Jesus, read the words of the Bible and figure out how to not do the wrong stuff. I don't know. Anybody else kind of feel like that was the simple, that was the, the how you would sum it up. And man, as I've grown and I walk with the Lord, I feel like there's just there's so, uh, I feel like I have understood about 5% of what Jesus really came to do. So 
we're using Isaiah 53 as a starting passage. And I just want to read this for us because it starts flushing out a little bit, maybe a little bit more of the different areas of what Jesus did for us. And as I mentioned, we, today I'm going to focus a little bit on sin that we engage in or something called transgressions. Next week, we want to talk about inheritance, um, sin that we've inherited from Adam or something that's become a part of us that I might call iniquity. And then we'll talk in the last week about wounding. But here's a prophetic passage in Isaiah 53 about Jesus. And this is what's, we hear this at Easter. We hear this read at Easter and Resurrection Sunday, but I want to read it today. It says this about him. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we, were, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's an amazing passage. It's this passage where we see the promise of the Messiah, this work of the Messiah, the work of Jesus that he's going to do for us. He's going to deal with transgressions, this idea of the things that we engage in, the things we do. He's going to deal with iniquities, things that we inherit or things that get developed as, as strongholds in our lives. He's going to deal with, and I love this, he says this, by his wounds we are healed. You know, in, my, in the past, I've thought mostly about physical healing, like Jesus took physical, and I think it applies to that, but I also think we're wounded in our lives in so many different ways. We're wounded emotionally, we're, we're, we're wounded psychologically, we're, we're wounded in, in how people speak to us, we're wounded in, in neglect, we're wounded in trauma, we're wounded, and Jesus is like, and he shows up after the resurrection to his disciples, and his scars are still there. His scars aren't gone after he resurrects. In our lives, I think we like to think, man, the resurrection, we're back to life. There's no proof of anything that bad had happened before. Jesus shows up and he's like, you can, you can feel my scars. You can see my wounds. Perhaps our healing is not the removal of any proof of, of wounding that we've had, but perhaps it's life and we still have scars. We talk about the bigness of who God is. So from this passage, we want to unpack the largeness of the work of Jesus. So today I want to talk a little bit about this idea of sin as something that we commit or something that we do. Um, in this book I've been reading, there's this poem by Langston Hughes, and I thought it was a beautiful little poem. It's called Tired. It says, I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind? Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. <laughs> Let's see what worms, right? Let's see what worms are eating at the rind. Most common definition for sin in the Bible is this idea of missing a mark. Like if you're an if you're an archer and you want to shoot an arrow at a bullseye 
and you don't hit the bullseye or you don't hit it quite right. You, you miss the mark. You miss the idea. So today I want to look at four areas um, that I see in the life of Jesus and in the teachings of Jesus, both the way he acted and the way he taught that I think challenge me in understanding sin in my own life. And some of these passages are familiar and some of these things I'm just going to talk briefly about and maybe you, the Holy Spirit will help you unpack them in your ideas. But this idea of us missing the mark, what we engage in, our actions, what our lives look like, both individually as well as collectively. Because Jesus didn't, as I was, I was raised a lot more to just think about my own sin, the sin that I engage in. But you know, there's, there's corporate sin, there's structural sin, there's sin that, that is it we engage in and can participate in larger than us. So the first idea I want to give to you where Jesus is addressing sin and he's calling out something where humanity is missing the mark is if you go through the Sermon on the Mount, you hear Jesus addressing, I think as I read the Sermon on the Mount, he's addressing what it means to miss the mark. He goes through the Sermon on the Mount, and I call this section legalism over integrity. Or the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law of what Jesus is trying to get to. He talks about how people are missing the mark. And he says, you've heard it said that you should uh, hate your enemies. Eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. But I say you should love your enemies. He, he has this phrase throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say. And that you've heard it said is this, this common idea of how people practice their religiosity before the Lord. They practice, well, we'll make these rules and we'll make this and we'll make that. And he's kind of like, I want to get past the rules that you make and I want to get to the heart of what my kingdom is about, what my heart is about. So he says, I, I feel like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, come up higher, come up higher. Leave the legalism, leave the letter of the law, come up higher. And he does this, he talks about anger talks about adultery, divorce, vows, revenge, loving our enemies. He challenges us, hey, I have something greater. I'm up higher. My kingdom is higher. You're missing the mark. He talks about how people give and pray and fast and think about money. He does it all in about two chapters. And it says at the end of the chapter, people were amazed they were like, wow, this guy speaks with real authority. He really knows what he's talking about. He talks about how we treat others. He says, he talks about judgment, judging one another. He talks about doing unto others as we would have done to us. And another other passages outside of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about forgiveness. And he says, how can you, you've got to forgive one another. Not forgiving others is going to hinder forgiveness in your own life. We've got to forgive one another. He talks about taking the planks out of our eyes before we try to help get the speck out of somebody else's eye. Jesus deals with legalism, this, this letter of the law versus the spirit of the law, what he's wanting to do in us. 
the people were amazed as he was calling them to come up higher. In another passage, he says, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. This exceeding righteousness, this exceeding justice, this exceeding way of viewing the world. The Lord says, look up higher, come up higher. The second area, and I'm borrowing this phrase because I love this phrase from this, this pastor, Rich, who's written this book. And he, and he says, here's another definition of sin, missing the mark. He says, how about, how about this definition of sin? It's a failure to love. Sin is a failure to love. I had to wrestle with that definition for a little bit and think about that. And, 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 and there's a couple of passages that come to mind. You know, there was, um, there's the story of the Good Samaritan. And the, the reason Jesus starts telling this story is because someone says, and, you know, good Lord, what do, we, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he says, you know, well, have, uh, you know, how do you read it? And the guy says, well, I need to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and strength, and I need to love my neighbor as myself. Jesus goes, hey, you've responded good. Good. Love, love, is, love sums it all up. You're right. Love, these areas, love sums it all up. And then the guy wants to be, says that he wanted to be justified, and he says, but who's my neighbor? And then Jesus proceeds to tell a story, and that's where he tells the Good Samaritan story. At the end of the story, we know what happens. This guy is beat up on the side of the road. He's been robbed. He's naked. He's got nothing. And two religious people walk by on the other side and don't want to have anything to do with him. And a Samaritan rolls up and picks him up, cares for him, takes him, gets him food and, and care and housing and takes care of him. And Jesus says, who, who do you think loved the neighbor? And they go, well, the Samaritan did. It would have been hard for them to say because they had a lot of prejudice against Samaritans, but I'm sure he squeaked it out of his teeth. He's like, oh, it was the Samaritan that did it. Uh, but that idea of what the other people in the story, Jesus was saying, it's all summed up. Everything's summed up in loving your neighbor as yourselves. And it was the other two who failed to love. There's a failure to love the good Samaritan did love. Think about the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10. I, I, do I have that scripture, Corky? Let's go ahead and put that up. So it says this, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked, only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, honor your father and mother. Sounds like a good list. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these things, commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Isn't that cool? He felt genuine love for this guy. He says, there's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this time, the man's face fell and he went away sad. He had many possessions. And what is, what is, what is Jesus getting at in this? What, what, not getting at, Jesus didn't tell this story. This story happened. We have this, this idea of this guy was, he loved his possessions. He loved his possessions more. 
the end of the day, he had a failure to love. He loved his possessions more. We see in Matthew 25, a similar story, the sheep and the goats, where Jesus' criticism or, or calling out an identification of the sheep and the goats has primarily to do with how well the sheep and the goats love the least. Visiting in prison, feeding, clothing, this idea of loving. So I think Jesus challenged the people of the day, the religious people of the day, the non-religious people of the day, everyone of the day, hey, my sin, missing the mark, is also a failure to love. John, John says this in 1 John 4, verse 19. It says, we love each other because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. So legalism over the spirit of the law, a failure to love. The third that I would like to propose that Jesus really challenged people on was a failure to prioritize. And I know that sounds like a business planning word, like prioritize, you got to get your priorities right. But in, in, our, in our walks with the Lord and in our practices of church tradition, we can get our priorities really messed up. We can put heavier emphasis on things that, that should require minor emphasis. We could put minor emphasis on things that need major emphasis. I think as you, as you watch Jesus' what he did and what he taught, you see him trying to align priorities. So he says this to the Pharisees. He says this, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat but you swallow a camel. What imagery? But what Jesus is trying to say, what are you focused on? Where are you giving your top priority? Is it justice, mercy, and faith? And I think we see that in the actions in the life of Jesus. They said, why are you observing Sabbath this way? You shouldn't tell somebody, heal somebody and have them pick up their mat and walk. Why are you doing that? And Jesus is like, oh, oh, this guy hasn't walked in 38 years and you're mad because he's carrying his mat. That's a camel. That's a camel. Come on. Justice, mercy, and faith. He challenges them about you, you focus on the outside of the cup, but not the inside of the cup. I think that's why Brueggemann says, hey, this should be the most honest place. We focus on cleaning the outside of the cup to look good 
And we all want to look good for each other. And yes, by faith, yeah, Jesus has done all this amazing stuff and, and he's doing all this amazing stuff in us, but he's, let's be honest. Let's not clean the outside first. Let's clean the inside first. And if the inside's clean, it's taken care of. He is without sin. Cast the first stone. Jesus, again, where are our priorities? Where are our priorities? What are we elevating? Are we elevating mercy over judgment? The fourth one that I want to mention today was Jesus was challenging and confronted systems of injustice that people had either accepted, enabled, or promoted. And I want to just give you some thoughts around these. Jesus constantly confronted this depersonalization or dehumanization of people. He got a lot of grief for showing dignity to sinners. It says it all the time, sinners and tax collectors, sinners and tax collectors. How did he do that? He ate with them. He had a meal with them. He, he shared a table with them. And at that time, this word sinners wasn't the word that I'm using for all of us, this idea of humanity. We're all sinners in humanity. This was a specific label for peoples who weren't practicing the tradition and the religion of the time. So they were labeled as sinners. They were labeled as tax collectors. Jesus gave dignity and ate with them and said, I've come for you. Jesus challenged the misuse of the temple. He came in and said, the way you all are practicing your temple practices, this is wrong. You got money changers. You're doing all of this stuff. You're not letting the Gentiles into their court where they're supposed to worship me. My, my temple's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You're doing this wrong. Let's, get, let's clean this temple out. Let's get this right. Jesus challenged the inclusion of women in his time and the way he interacted with women. The Samaritan woman is, how are you even talking to me? There were women in Jesus's company. They were the financiers of his, a lot of uh, what, what Jesus's disciples did. He broke down that wall. Jesus touched the unclean. He touched the leprous. He was touched by the, the woman with the issue of blood. He, he constantly challenged the systems of clean and unclean, clean and unclean. He broke that down. Jesus challenged what's allowable in the observance of Sabbath. Man, that, that was a big one. That was a big one. He was almost every, you're going to see it all over the stories of Jesus. It was, this is how Sabbath is supposed to be practiced. The letter of the law, the legalism in Jesus. Jesus didn't say Sabbath wasn't important. He just said, you're getting it wrong. You're getting Sabbath wrong. He confronted, in Matthew 23, is a whole chapter where he confronts the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law about the way in which they're conducting themselves. He challenges them against how they're abusing widows. So he comes and he's, and, and I think in our tradition, in my tradition, a lot of what I've been raised to look at has been my own individual sin. What are the things that I've done? What, what is, how is it between me and God? And I'm challenged to think about these structural things that Jesus came to address. And again, as I'm going through this, I'm only skimming the top. I'm sure there's, there's so much that I've left out. 
Charles Finney was a um, well-known revivalist, this, the Second Great Awakening. Uh, in, around in the 1830s, he kind of invented the, the altar call and the big tent, the, the revival services. And um, I was reading in her book, Lisa Sharon Harper's book, The Very Good Gospel. She, she also talks about this idea that Finney was a massive abolitionist. And so she says this, men and women confessed and repented of their personal sin as well as their complicity with structural evil. And when they wiped away their tears and opened their eyes, Finney thrust a pen in their hands and pointed them to the sign-up sheets for the abolitionist movement. Isn't that cool? Right? You, you get that spirit, you get that heart in Jesus. We can fail in love when we dehumanize and depersonalize any group of people. Any, any, everyone is made in the image of God. And Jesus was coming and saying, you're missing the mark. We're missing the mark as humanity. How are we missing the mark as humanity? What does that mean that we do? What does that mean? How do we live? So we've looked at four aspects, legalism, a failure to love, a failure, failure to prioritize, and unjust systems. These are just areas that I want to open up for us and ask the Lord, Lord, in my life, in our lives, in our practices, in my practices, you were pierced for my transgressions. You were pierced for our transgressions. You came to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us, to wipe them away, but not just to wipe them away, but also to call us to come up higher. People resisted Jesus because he exposed sin in their lives and sin in the structures that they didn't want to deal with. He talk, talks about people in John, it talks about people loving darkness more than they love the light. I know I do. I don't want, don't want to talk about that. Don't want to deal with that. Don't want to, Oh, that's, that hits too close to the bone. For, for us, Jesus brings his light and exposes sin so he can forgive it. He can bring healing and bring us out of, our, of, these, of these practices that don't hit the mark. The work of Christ is meant to be far-reaching in us, far-reaching in our society, in our practices. Jesus said he came for the sick and not the well. And the, really the sick had to do with, with what Paul said. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the utmost of sinners. I'm, it's me. It starts with me. If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants to bring about lasting change and fruitfulness. Where he talks in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what he says. He says, you're going to know. And he says it all, all throughout. Jesus says, you're going to know my people by the fruit, by their fruit. The Lord wants to just produce this fruit in us. So the Lord gives us opportunities to deal with sin. And, and there's opportunities, lots of opportunities in our lives. You saw Paul even saying that. You saw first John writing about it. Um, let's confess our James writes about it. We can, um, you know, we can confess our sins one to another so that we can be healed. John writes about it. 
you know, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So as, as followers of Jesus, we have an opportunity for ongoing confession and repentance and change and wholeness and healing. And man, it makes it in us, it brings out healing, wholeness, fruitfulness in our families and our structures and what we do. It brings out the life of Jesus. Sin brings death in all of these areas. Jesus brings life in all of these different areas. We can also come to this place of saying, sometimes we call it a salvation experience. Like, man, I recognize this. I've never, I don't feel like I've ever walked with Jesus. I feel like now I'm starting to see, I see my sin. I see who I am. And you know what? I see Jesus. Jesus has come to save us from our sins, to forgive us of our sins, to bring us freedom and to bring us life, to bring us out of captivity, to forgive us both for the sins that we engage in, the sins that we've inherited, and the sins that have occurred to us. He's like, come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He takes all of our sin upon him and he forgives us and makes us new. As the love of God does its work in us, we're going to discover a depth of God's love that could never we could never imagine. With every discovery of sin in our lives, there's an opportunity to look at the pierced Jesus, the crushed Jesus, the wounded Jesus, the crucified Jesus, and experience the depth of his love all over again. Jesus' death and resurrection gives us victory over sin. Victory over sin. Forgiveness for our ongoing sin. And compassion for one another. Empathy for one another. And as we, as we walk with Jesus, as we confess our sins, as we repent, as we ask the Lord to continue to bring us into wholeness and maturity, Man, we've got these words of Jesus that keep challenging us, keep challenging us to the spirit of the law, the love of God, the prioritization that the Lord has, the injustice that the Lord wants to address. And it's like, man, the Lord wants us to be whole, healed, and free. And we just have to confess and repent. Paul says, I'm the worst of the sinners. And then what do I do now? Zacchaeus was in a tree and he was like, he saw Jesus and he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty scummy. And he eats with Jesus and then he goes, I gotta, I've been robbing people. I gotta, I gotta stop robbing people and I gotta pay everybody I've robbed back. That was repentance. Let repentance do its work. How does that play out in our lives to conclude, I want to, I have a prayer that um, is in this book by Rachel Held Evans that I just thought we could pray. It's just really a prayer of confession and repentance. And if you all wouldn't mind, I'd love to just pray it together. We can just read it together. Um, Corky, if you could put that up. It says, would you pray this with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. One more. 
We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Paul said this, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, to honor, to uh, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Man, as we, I just want to pray for us as we go, that the Lord's, that the Lord will do a, a special work in us in this time, a deep work in us in this time. Amen. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord that we're the worst of sinners. I'm the worst of sinners. And Lord, your, your picture of wholeness, your picture of freedom, your picture of life, your picture of forgiveness, your picture of reconciliation, your picture of restoration is so big. And Lord, it's big for each one of us. Lord, would you enlarge our love? Would you enlarge our hearts in the coming weeks? As you, as you just shine your light, Lord, shine your light in my heart, shine your light in our hearts, Lord, that we could, any areas of darkness, Lord, that you want to address, Lord, address them. Call us up higher, Lord. Call us up higher. Thank you, Jesus, that you, <laughs> we can, as, as sinners, as, as people who've done the worst things, Lord, you can make all things new. And we can worship you for your victory over sin, your victory over death, your victory over these different areas. And Lord, would you give us grace to be able to walk out those victories in our lives and in this place? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'd like further prayer this morning, we're going to have our prayer teams. If you're online, if you have a prayer request, please email that in and we will reach out to you and have an opportunity to pray with you. Um, Please don't forget our men's breakfast on Saturday. Um, hope you guys all can make it and um, have a great week. Thanks.